0: once again to Jazz Backstory. Today's episode takes another look at jazz players in the commercial studio scene. In episode 17, we heard from New York City jazz players who found steady employment in the Big Apple recording studios, where they played every imaginable style of music. Our focus today is on the equally active West Coast musicians, the LA scene, where a player in one 12-hour period might start their day with a jingle date, end it on a session for an iconic vocalist, and fit in a live Tonight Show gig in between. Over time, Los Angeles became the location of choice for recording movie scores, but session musicians also filled their calendar with rock and roll and sitcom music dates. You'll recall trombonist Alan Raff from our last episode, who developed an attitude about the day-to-day grind of playing music that was simplistic and repetitive. Allen was straightened out by a fellow studio veteran, but there were less patient jazz players who chose their own sanity over the steady bread. Paul Smith played on numerous movie scores and enjoyed a lengthy gig as Ella Fitzgerald, piano accompanist. He did not think much of the licks required for pop and rock and roll dates. The Aussie Paul mentions is Ozzy Nelson of Ozzy and Harriet fame, father of the '60s rock star, Ricky Nelson. When you got to back into the studios, had the music changed much from when you were working with Ozzy and?
1: Uh, Well, Ozzy was in the 40s. In the 50s, uh, the 50s actually were the best time, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, I never came home complaining about the music on the date. You know, I got to work with Johnny Green and uh, Max Steiner and uh, uh, Alfred Newman, Lionel Newman. And the guys, you know, you'd go in and there'd be a big, beautiful string section and everything, and you're part of it. It was just lovely to... Was lovely to do. You know? mm-hmm.
2: yeah,
1: it wasn't until about the early '60s that it started to deteriorate and get into the eighth triplet syndrome, you know, da, da, and the oohs and as, you know, with the groups. But uh, when the eighth, eighth, triplets came in, I could see the handwriting on the wall because I, I did one date, uh, where the piano was facing. The conductor, and. Uh, he had this whole thing was eighth triplets, you know, and the band's Yeah, and just as a gag, you know, I took off my loafer and put it on my hand, so I'm playing with a shoe, and he can't see, and I'm going ching 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 with a shoe on my hand. Played the entire date that way, and when I first did it, I looked at him kind of like, and he said, "Great, that's the sound he wants, you know, ching 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 ching, and I'm playing with a shoe." So I had a faint idea what was uh, coming coming up, you know. I mean, he never knew, and I never certainly never told him. But I could have sent one of my kids in, you know, with a shoe and say, "Play da, da 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 da, and stop when he does this," and that's it. You know. <laughs> that's <laughs> so I could see what music was 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 uh, coming to at that time.
0: I have to ask that obvious question to me is what
1: what key was that piece in if you were playing with your shoe on it? doesn't make any difference. It's just the sound. Ching, ching, ching. They could, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't make any chord changes. That's, I mean, the, sh- sh- I mean, yeah. the shoe covered part of the, uh, it was mostly on the black keys, you know, but the uh lower part was on the white, so he was getting white and black both. You know, oh. gin, ba, 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 ba. but all he could hear was ching, ching 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 and that's that's the sound he wanted. You know, oh. didn't make any difference what what notes they were. It wasn't like hmm. playing a G chord or a D chord or anything like that. Yeah, just ching ching ching. That's it.
0: <laughs> that 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 six eight feel was kind of a was it because it was a good dance feel? Is that why that became a, th- a thing?
1: I don't I I don't really know. I just uh, you know, I mean, I went up to him after the date and told him not to call me on those kind of dates anymore. Uh-huh. It cost me a lot of money, but uh mm-hmm. you know, I'd I'd rather come home happy than uh irritated.
0: Yeah. <laughs> you know. The ching-ching-ching lick Paul describes is well known to studio pianists, a stylistic requirement at the time for medium tempo pop ballads from the 50s and 60s. One triplet per beat. Here's a sampling, played over a common chord progression from that era. And I left the shoe triplets to Paul Smith. Music contractors on both coasts had their A-lists, consisting of the most accomplished, versatile, and reliable players on every instrument. These musicians rose to the top, to a level where they were in constant demand. Saxophonist Ernie Watts lived on the A-list for decades, and he offers a fascinating description of the life. When you were doing a particular date, did you ever have a sense of... This tune or this date is going to last. This is going to sell records. It's going to be something that, you know, years from now people are still listening to.
3: No, when you're working, you're just working. Mm-hmm. It's just your work, it's just what you do. I mean, I was doing like, I would get up in the morning and I'd go and I'd do a record date. And it could be the Jacksons or it could be uh, Sarah Vaughn. Or, or it could be uh, Barbra Streisand. You know I did pop records, I did jazz records, I'd go and I'd do a record date in the morning and then in the afternoon was The Tonight Show. So I, I, the record dates usually run three hours so I'd do a date from ten until one, take a break, go over to The Tonight Show, do The Tonight Show. The Tonight Show would be off at 6.30 and I'd do another record date at seven. Right, so I usually do two record dates on the Tonight Show just about every day, or I do three record dates or a big movie date, and I'd send a sub to the Tonight Show (laughs) because sometimes you know movie dates are all day long. I did that every day for 20 years, you know. So when you're doing that, all you're doing really, all you're thinking about is keeping your health together and going to work. Uh You know, you have absolutely no idea of the greatness of what's going on or how something's going to last or whatever. What's happening now? Is all of these R and B records that I played on with the Temptations and Barry White and all of these people, they're being used for commercials. And I'm getting these big checks. I'm getting these checks for, for Billy Preston things and oh, stuff yeah, like we'll that. Oh yeah, will go I around did. in circles and we'll all that? Will it go stuff. around in circles? Nothing from nothing. Yeah. All of that stuff. They're big commercials now. Or they use these things for TV themes. And there's all of these reuse checks yeah. that come in. I said did I play it on that? <laughs> Couple more things. I just in the in that realm.
0: Frank Zappa. What was that like?
3: The music was very difficult. Uh, he was like a cl- a contemporary classical composer that happened to play rock and roll mm-hmm. guitar. I mean, he was very very bright. Very bright man, and he knew his music and he knew what he wanted, and all of that stuff was scored out. I mean, it was like you know it was like classical composition, and when you hear his stuff, it's very similar. you know it's very similar to, similar to contemporary classical. Mm-hmm. and it's, it was difficult stuff. You know, it was like playing Stravinsky. Very good music.
0: Did some of those th- things seem oh gosh weird at the time for you?
3: Nothing is weird after you listen to Ascension and all of those Coltrane things, which I grew up with. I mean I grew up listening to free music. I mean what I came into, kind of blue was sort of the beginning of that and Coltrane took the the modal improvisation thing and then he just took it on out. And that was the stuff I hooked into because I hooked into Coltrane with Miles Band. So as soon as he went to impulse and you know fourteen minutes of impression and chasing the train and all of that stuff, that was that was the blues to me. (laughs) That was like, hey, that was it, you know. So that's what I.
0: (laughs) You can't shock me. Yeah, I mean,
3: I had to relearn. I had to learn about chords. I had to learn about bebop. I had to learn about two five ones and all of that stuff because the music I came into was free modal music, Mm -hmm. you know. So, I had to come back to Charlie Parker and Dexter and Lester and all of those people. But I did because I love all of that music, you know. But so, anyway, going to Zappa, no, Zappa wasn't weird because where I was coming from made Zappa look like, you know, Bill Haley.
0: (laughs) I grimace a bit when I hear this exchange now. As I struggled at the time to think of a descriptive word for Frank Zappa's music, Settling on weird. If I could do it again, I might use a synonym. Online offerings include eccentric, freaky, and outlandish. Frank Zappa's music is undeniably incredible. Perhaps my choice was a flashback from when I saw him live in 1968. For me, at that time, Frank Zappa was weird. Ernie mentions John Coltrane's Ascension an ensemble experiment released in 1966, often cited as an example of free jazz and contemporary group improvisation. Challenging listening, that does make Frank Zappa and the Mothers of Invention look like Bill Haley and the Comets. Bobby Shue is a highly accomplished musician known to a select group of trumpet players, West Coast studio contractors, and Monkrow of the Phileas Jazz Archive. He's a member of an elite subset within a group of elite musicians, the fraternity of lead trumpet players. Skill, stamina, and consistency are required in this role And lead trumpeters can develop outsized opinions of themselves. During our December 2020 interview, Bobby addressed the place of ego in the high-pressure world of studio work.
4: But, you know,
2: I I have to tell you one time I was doing a thing at Universal and in the trumpet section, you know, uh, it's a funny thing that Dalton Smith, who was a great guy to play with, you know, and uh, work with all the time, you know, Dan Kenton's lead player for a while, but sometimes they used to write stuff so high and ridiculously hard for me, I'd finish it and I'd get it done. But I go, Christ, why do I have to write like this for me? Oh my God, you know. And Dalton said, you know, one time, he said, there's an exercise that you can do. He said, if you do that exercise, it, it saves your chops and you can last forever. And I said. Really, I need to know what is that exercise? Is he says, "Here, you play this and you play that." You know?
0: <laughs> oh, that's so, a good one. I, I it, you don't find they don't teach you that in music school. <laughs> no, they don't.
2: So I, uh, I was doing the thing at Universal Studios one day, and it was just like some sort of a, a, silly movie about like the late twenties, early thirties, or something. And there was a, it was a scene where there was a little kind of a. John Philip Sousa, tiny band on a gazebo in a park, and people were all walking through in a Sunday afternoon, you know, and they're their dressed up and all of that. And you turn the page, and there's Carnival of Venice. What? <laughs> <laughs> and Why the writer had to put that there? He could have put anything there. But he had this was somebody who said, Oh, I'm going to put Carnival of Venice. So it's like you must hate trumpet players, you know, to, to make. All of a sudden, you turn the page, and there's this thing. Well, I couldn't play that thing ever in my life, not now, and not then, because I never took any lessons as a kid. I never learned to double tongue or triple tongue. I had no classical training whatsoever, you know, other than playing marches in my high school band. that was it, you know, and other than that i I was just a jazz guy and a big band person, so. I played in some salsa bands, but I couldn't double time. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I have looked at that thing, and and there's Warren Looning sitting right next to me. I went, "You, you got it." <laughs> and Warren had done all of that. He had done all that stuff, and just passed the part to him, and he nailed it, it just like the old Del Stegers one. And it was not the entire thing, but it was enough of it that I couldn't have played it, uh-huh. not a million years. When we did the, the Tony Randall show, the, the theme, we get there to the first session, the theme is a piccolo trumpet. What the hell? Nelson had. Here you go Nelson. And <laughs> so you passed the part. Because yeah. you, don't, you you, you got to keep, one of the things is that it's very important in those situations is you cannot go in there with an ego issue. You're asking for trouble if you do, because ego is really simply defined as self-importance. When you make, oh, I am important and I have to do this and I'm going to brag about because I did it. Well, you're going to shit all over that piccolo trumpet part and everybody on the planet is going to know who sucked on that piccolo thing on Tony Randall's show. Oh, that was Shu. I should have figured, you know. (laughs) But (laughs) they said, no, we can say no. Shue passed the part to Nelson Hatt. Oh, that shoe is a smart cookie, you know.
0: Fellow trumpeter Wayne Bergeron, a next generation contemporary of Bobby Shue, spoke about self-confidence being discovered or not, and the work ethic required to sustain a career in the studios. A musical test in the Uh-oh. form of a, a trivia question. Uh-oh. And you'll probably see where this is going in a hurry. Uh, what do these uh, media events or people have in common? The Incredibles, Rosemary Clooney, Family Guy, Gordon Goodwin's Big Fat Band, and Green Day.
5: Um, Huge egos. No, uh, <laughs> 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 those might be projects that I've worked on over the years. <laughs> That's right, and I, you know, I could I could do that for the
0: next hour just read them. So. <laughs> Uh, speaking of huge egos, do you find it necessary to have an ego in your business or is it better not to have one?
5: Well, I mean, if you're a drummer, a trumpet player, or a rock guitarist, there's a certain amount of confidence <laughs> that those instruments, well, all, you know, when you're playing by yourself, you're playing a solo, there's a certain amount of confidence we all need. And so that can, I don't think it should cross the line into ego, but you need to have enough confidence in your own abilities, I think. Uh, is the great George Graham, who was a great lead trumpet player from here, once told me there's a fine line between getting discovered and found out. And so I think it's the same thing between uh, confidence and ego. <laughs> Can you explain
0: that being discovered and found out?
5: Well, for instance, uh, I've always been of the school that uh, if you play music, you don't really need to say anything. You, didn't even, you don't even, we don't even need to be speaking the same language. You could be speaking French and I could be speaking Spanish. But if we picked up our instruments and just played, we know everything we need to know about each other's ability, right? Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of musicians and where the ego comes in, where they have to talk a big game because maybe there's some insecurities in their own playing that they want to hide And so that's where the, that's the ego part of it. You know what I mean? And so George used to say that, you know, when people talk about how good they are and then when you hear them play, finally, well, you've just got found out, you know, instead of getting discovered and you can get discovered by just, and I tell students this all the time, they want to know, oh, how do I get work? And I go, well, you're asking the wrong question. I go, "You you need to hone your craft. And I go, and when you play really well, I go, good news travels fast. I see. And I said, and if you don't play really well, Good news. I said that news still travels really fast.
0: Well, you you already started to answer my um, this a question that this led to, and you sound like a fairly modest guy. But can you tell us why you were chosen so many times over the years for the work you do?
5: Um, good question. Um, You know, nobody gets thrown into this business and then just starts doing all the work right away. It's a slow burn. Usually, you know, you, and, and you somebody, maybe somebody hears you play and you get an opportunity, you know, somebody hires, and then you get that opportunity. And then you have to prove yourself with that opportunity, you know, and it doesn't mean you're going to start working for those people nonstop because there's other people that have been working for them for years, maybe, but, as you get in there and prove yourself, and you'll get another out. If you get an op- good op- if you get an opportunity and you do well, another opportunity will come from those people, even if it's down the road two months. And eventually, you get into the mix. People retire, people pass away, people piss contractors off, and they stop hiring them, I and you move up those lists. <laughs> and that's been my <laughs> career. And 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 I'll tell you just a quick story. You uh, know. Uh, about this, because it's a true story is a contractor who named Joe, Joe Solo, and he's 95 years old now, and he came out to the West Coast from New York, he was a New York studio musician, and uh, he was a contractor for the Carol Burnett show. And so when that show came out here, he came out with the show he contracted the musicians on that show. and. Uh, I got a first big movie I ever did was for him. This uh, was 35 years ago, probably. This movie called Another Stakeout. And it wasn't necessarily a big movie in the theater. It's fairly big, Emilio and But it was a hundred piece orchestra. And I got called to do this thing. First day I was there, I was just, you know, I was very nervous, you know, because I'm sitting there, a hundred piece orchestra and the trumpet section is, you know, three of my heroes. And I've never been so terrified to play fourth trumpet in my entire life, you know, and uh, I like to say I was as nervous as a hooker in church. That's my kind of my standard line. <laughs> you know, so so I, I, I did the date and, and I got my composure and finally started feeling comfortable playing. Things were going well and and at the end of the date I gave my paperwork to this contractor to Joe to to uh, so I can get paid and you know all my stuff. And he said, "Oh yeah," everybody said you did a really nice job. And I said, "Well, thank you for the opportunity. You know, it was really fun." And uh, he goes, "I'm going to put you on my list, man." And I go, oh, great. He goes, I'm going to put you on the bottom of my list. And so I kind of laughed. He goes, you want to know why I'm going to put you on the bottom of my list? I go, yeah, well, why? And he goes, well, because of all these players that I've been using for 40 years, some of them, who should I fire to put you, to move you up? Which one of my employees should I fire? And that always kind of stuck with me. I go, well, of course, that makes total sense. And his, that was his line. He goes, goes, trust me. As they retire, die, or piss me off. You'll move up. You know, it's it's a great
0: story, and your s- students would profit from knowing how do you piss a contractor off.
5: Um, you show up at the last minute, even though you're on time. You uh, you're disruptive on the session. Um, which musicians can be disruptive? <laughs> let's face it. You know, we're funny people, and. I mean, especially jazz musicians so if you're on a big orchestra date you know you got a big jazz brass section there because it's a jazz you know we're cracking jokes of string players over there stiff as a board you know of course you know and so you know you have to you have to know your environment and know when you can let loose a little bit and so there's situations that I know to keep my mouth shut and you just say yes sir no sir and you just play the part and you take the money and you go home. And those other situations when you're around friends and you know the composer, when I mean, Gordon Goodwin's on the podium, you know, for doing a movie like The Incredibles. I mean, it's intense because the music's hard, but where there's laughter and we can make jokes, okay. and, right. you know. So you have to know when to do that. But you can. Not all contractors like that. They want you to shut up. They want it pin drop quiet. And it usually is like that because everybody's taking it very seriously, of course. Okay. But that's a, that's a way you can piss a contra. But the showing up at the last minute, which I watched some, some musicians get drummed out of the business, kind of, because they would show up ten minutes before downbeat, which seems like plenty of time. But I'm the first one there. When I met it, when you go to when I go to one of my TV shows that I do, you know, Family Guy or something, I walk in. I'm the first brass player on that stage. And the contractor and the composers always come in. They go, hey, wait, how are you doing? And I'm warming up. And I'm doing that for me. I'm not doing it to impress them. It's just part what I do. I get there early and I warm up, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, But I think they see that and they in, in, in their minds. Boy, you can always count on this person to be be there. And so if I am, if it's 10 till the start time and I'm not there, they know something's wrong.
0: Mm.
5: You know, I was in an accident or something bad has happened, you know.
0: The 2022 Pixar hit Soul opened with what sounded like a sixth-grade band playing the Disney theme, "When You Wish Upon a Star." Wayne relates the backstory to that distinctive rendition.
5: My wife and I were watching. We watched the movie Soul last night, the new Pixar movie, as, which as is really did cute. Me. Yes. And I, I, I worked, I worked on that movie, so I did a lot of the underscore, and I played the opening scene where it sounds like a middle school band. I'm playing first trumpet on, on that, so I'll, oh, come I'll, on I'll, send, I'll send you the clip of that too, so you can you can hear the other side of the coin. So, and they also used the elementary school band. You did hear them a little bit in the movie, which was really great. I thought they used okay. them. But are you but, telling me that? Are you telling me
0: that that opening thing was all professional musicians? Yeah, I
5: have video. I have videos of me in the studio with my iPhone on my stand playing it. That was all professional. How did, how did, How
0: do you do that?
5: How Um, do you make yourself sound like a a sixth grader? Some of the guys played the horns upside down like Clark Terry. And so it makes the fingering real sloppy. Uh, We pulled our slides in and out and then tried to, you know, just play to where the pitch would would be. Saxophone players were doing the same thing, squeaking on purpose. Uh, You know, there's a point where we went too far. They go, that's too bad. We can't recognize the melodies. All right, we've done it. We've... We played it so bad, and so then we did several versions. where We had to reel it in, and and you know you play out of time, and we don't talk about it too much. We kind of know what to do. It's it's just you know you miss you miss the key signature, you know especially on an inner part. So there's a good wrong note in there. I uh, see. The drums are crashing and banging out of time. You know the bass is completely out of tune, of course, and and uh, the last chord goes. <clears throat>
0: Wayne did indeed send me a video clip of the session. After his last out-of-tune note and the ensuing laughter mixed with praise for sounding appropriately bad, he further cracked up the crew by stating, Yeah, and I get double scale for the lead trumpet. You might want to watch Soul one more time, at least the opening credits, and picture A-Team studio cats recreating their childhood band experience. As an aside, remember the end of The Music Man? I'm willing to bet that it was professional musicians that butchered Beethoven's minuet in G. You know, the la-di-da-di-da-di-da-di-da. Da-di-da. Wayne's crack about double scale provides a segue into this episode's vocabulary terms. The once all-powerful musicians' union still has a strong presence in the recording business. The union negotiates an hourly scale for all manner of studio work. And like most union contracts, there are special hourly rates for specialized work. Bobby Shue and Wayne Bergeron worked their way into double or triple scale for their outstanding lead trumpet skills. Saxophonists like Ernie Watts and Tom Scott earned a specific solo hourly scale, and on occasion may complete their studio dates in one hour. Another component of this daily work is the click track. Musicians often play to a click, a constant and predetermined sort of tick-tock in their headphones. It's often employed for movie score recordings and for musical cues that need to fit in a tight time frame. It's a bit soul-sucking to play with, and may be what you hear in your head when it hits the pillow after an extended session. Depending on the personnel, a click track is not always needed. I recently interviewed Bernie Kirsch, who served as Chick Korea's engineer for 40 years. One particular LP, The Leprechaun, challenging music for piano, bass, and drums, plus horns, strings, and vocals. I asked if Bernie needed a click track during the recording. Bernie said, No, we had Steve Gadd. Nuff said. And we should mention residuals, those big checks in the mail that Ernie Watts mentioned. Fortunately for the studio players, there is a process in place that generates payments when recordings are reused for other than their initial purpose. These players are occasionally astonished to receive bread for sessions they barely recall. Hang on for a momentary transition back to the East Coast where Bucky Pizzarelli and drummer Ronnie Zito share their residual stories.
2: We played together. We were on a Wrigley uh, Wrigley, uh, Spearmint Gum commercial. Double your pleasure, or something like that.
0: <laughs> double your pleasure, double your fun. Yeah, yeah. With double, gum.
2: double gum. We made a lot of money on that day. How come? Well, they play it. Uh, Super Bowl Sunday came around. We ended up with five thousand in in dollars in a mailbox.
0: Do you ever get checks in the mail and you' not sure what they're for? Yeah, that's happened to me. Yes, yes. <laughs> from films, from usually from
6: films, like I, I remember. Oh, I still get a check from uh, what was that? The Spielberg movie, uh, Close Encounters. Close Encounters. No kidding. Now, now get this. You remember the scene in the movie where uh, he's building a mountain inside of his house? Yeah. Yes. Mashed potatoes, everything. Yeah, right. Right. There's a TV on. And they're playing a Budweiser commercial Mm -hmm. that I'm on. (laughs) So I get a check for like 90 bucks every once in a while. (laughs) 85 bucks. At first I didn't know what it was. And then I I found out, you know, because it was weird. It was like, I I didn't do the film. I I was just on a, the TV was playing in the room while he was building a, (laughs) It's so beautiful, beautiful. man. It's weird, isn't
0: it? It's weird. The aforementioned Tom Scott has played on more recordings than most people, including himself, can remember. Tom speaks about his daily work ethic, and shares an anecdote about one particular session with a fairly well known musician. Here's a quote from one of your colleagues about um, those years And, and he said, this isn't playing, it's craft. L.A. is an incredible place for craft. Your soul is not usually nurtured.
4: Well, I don't, I don't agree with that.
0: I, I, don't I had a that. feeling from what you've said so far that, that you would not. No. No, my soul was nurtured every day. Okay. I love
4: my work. I mean, look, uh, there were sessions I did where I didn't necessarily like, the, uh, there were pop sessions we did. Um, I'm referring to the ones that come to mind are the ones that we used to do with a guy named Wes Farrell. Who, who for a t- brief time was married to uh, uh, one of Sinatra's daughter, daughters, Tina. And he was a real, I don't know, <laughs> Mike Milvoin called him a starker. I guess that means sort of a poser. He was a poser. He always dressed very elegantly and had the, had the talk. He was a fast-talking New Yorker, you know, like that. And he produced uh, all the Partridge Family Records and David Cassidy. Okay. And uh, there were a bunch of them. And so We, we, the horn section, which was at the time, I think it was me, Chuck Finley, Ollie Mitchell, who I mentioned before, uh, uh, Slide Hyde, and Lou McCreary, we would go in to do the horns overdubs. And Mike Melvoin wrote these horn charts, most of them, and sometimes uh, Jim Huart. So even though the tune was kind of, I don't know, dumb (laughs) or mundane, uh, you know, it, it, it didn't matter because... We were there to play the best damn horn section you've ever heard in your life. So we took our part very seriously within what we were doing. We didn't know how, how far the mix it was going to be or whether it's going to be there at all. We didn't really care. It wasn't our job. Our job was to go in there and play with one another, which we which we took great joy in doing. And whatever the music is, man, we'll we'll, we'll play. We'll just nail it. So that was that was that was you know soul gratifying just to do that. Regardless of this artist.
0: Let me just wrap up. I forgot to ask about um, Paul McCartney, who over the years definitely knew what he wanted. I, I think of the Penny Lane trumpet solo and apparently how he vocalized it and had George Martin write it down. Right. So when you played on that Wings track, um, did he tell you what to play?
4: well you know if you'll give me just a second i will i can read you from a quote from paul mccartney himself uh let let me see if i got it here so in a subsequent article after the record came out uh an issue of rolling stone uh paul said and i quote we were in los angeles listen to what the man said was one of the songs we had high hopes for but when we did the backing track we thought it didn't really get it together at all Someone said, Tom Scott lived very near, so we said, give him a ring. He turned up in half an hour. He put his headphones on and started playing along casually. Meanwhile, the engineer was recording it. No one could believe it. He had all this feeling on his first take. And, it, and in fact, uh, I, I thought I was just playing along to learn the tune. My eyes were closed and I had no idea that I was being recorded. In fact, when, I, when the thing ended, I looked up and everybody was applauding in the, in the booth. And I go, oh, wait, 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 wait a minute. I don't even know, you know, it was a totally unconscious uh, take. So I said, let me do one more because now I know the tune. Of course, you can you can well imagine the, the take that went on the final record. It's that one that was just pure feel.
0: My, my face is hurting from smiling so much, Tom. <laughs> That's just marvelous. I'll wrap up this episode with a brief anecdote of my own. A close friend in Utica, New York, operated a respectable studio where I assisted as a producer and studio musician. I frequently overdubbed keyboard or sax parts for bands searching for their moment of stardom. On one session, I showed up with my sax, and the producer said, All we need is one screeching note in this two-beat break in the song. He did his best imitation of a motivational coach, hyping me for the moment. You rock, you're the man, you're going to nail it, and other similar blather. Fortunately for me, the note happened to be a high A. Transposed to my alto sax, a high F sharp, slightly out of the range of the horn, but a note that I could squeeze out with an appropriate intensity. I donned the headphones, and when the moment came, I screamed out a high F sharp for all I was the worth. Here's that note. (laughs) The producer was ecstatic. That was it. Fifteen minutes in and out. A first take. A one-note wonder. The question arose. What do I charge for one F sharp? Do I charge just for that note? What about the money I saved for the band doing my part in a quarter of an hour? I honestly can't remember what I ended up making for that session and for that note. But I was grateful that their producer did not utter the phrase, too often heard in studios. That was perfect. Let's do it again. So a tip of the hat to both the triple scale players and the nameless studio cats who over the decades have played a role In an endless stream of significant music. If you've not seen the documentary The Wrecking Crew about the LA studio scene, I highly recommend it and be sure to check out our video interviews on the Phileas Jazz Archive YouTube channel. See you on the flip side.